Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to the first episode in 2021 of Ejo, the podcast, the podcast of the European Journal of International Law. My name is Dapo Akande. I'm Professor of International Law at the University of Oxford and one of the editors of EGIL Talk, the blog of the European Journal of International Law. This podcast began last year in order to provide a forum for having conversations about contemporary issues in public international law. We're recording this episode on the 21st of January, the day after Joe Biden took over as President of the United States of America, or as some might prefer to view it the day after Donald Trump vacated office. And in this episode, as the new Biden administration takes over, we want to look back at the effect of the four years of the Trump administration on international law. Some have referred to Donald Trump as a consequential president. There have certainly been significant changes in the approach of the United States to international relations over the past four years. But did the Trump administration's policies bring significant changes to international law? And are those changes likely to be lasting changes? With me today are Joseph Weiler, Editor-in-Chief of the European Journal of International Law and University Professor at New York University School of Law. Welcome, Joseph. Welcome. Thank you. Pleased to be here. And Joseph, where are you today? I'm in Oxford. Where are you? I'm in Wroclaw in Poland. Ah, excellent. And also with me is Neha Jain, who is Professor of International Law at the European University Institute in Florence, but who before that position held professorships at law schools in the United States. Welcome to you, Neha. And where do we find you at the start of 2021? I'm very fortunate to be in Florence. And last but not least, we have Shimen Keitner, who is Professor of International and Comparative Law at the University of California, Hastings. Shimen was Counselor of International Law at the United States Department of State from 2016 to 2017. Welcome, Shimen. Where do we find you today? So I'm south of San Francisco uh, with kids home doing online school like many people around the world. (laughs) Brilliant. Okay, now let me start with a broad question addressed to each of you. In which area or areas of international law do you think uh, the Trump administration has had most effect for ill or for good in these last four years? Neha, can I start with you? Um, Sure. So I think the Trump administration, um, beyond simply its effect in specific areas of international law, had affected the architecture of the international legal system, not only in its substance, its process and its institutions, but also, more importantly, in its underpinnings and and underlying values, a belief in multilateralism, for instance, um, and whether that still stands, a belief in the liberal internationalist order of which the Trump administration Um, whether the Trump administration is both an accelerator and a symptom of the liberal internationalist order not working um, any longer. So it's it's more broadly questioning the international order as such and not simply specific areas in international law. 
Okay. Shimon, what would you say? So I'd have to echo that. I think it's uh, too soon to tell what the long-term impact will be, but it's clear that the instrumentalist approach of the Trump administration, which again is not new with this administration, but was certainly uh, exemplified by it, is really shaking the trust among you know, a, a core coalition of allies that had really sustained the post-World War II international order. It obviously wasn't an all-encompassing order. Uh, and I think you know, we see the rise of China as an example of a country that was, was sort of waiting in the wings to shape the international order in a way that was more conducive to its interests. But the fundamental premises of the post-World War II order, that democratic countries, uh, by you know, having democracy at home in inclusive societies, could project those values and, and create an international society that also reflected values of democracy and inclusion. Uh, and as Neha mentioned, the idea that multilateralism writ large was to the net benefit of the populations of the various countries in the world. Um, we have seen a much more transactional instrumentalist approach and the, the lasting effects of that uh, are, are certainly still to be seen. Hmm. Joseph, how would you respond? I don't disagree with everything we've heard so far. I would make one point that in addition to certain damage that he created to the international legal system in specific areas, he damaged America's standard standing in the world of international law. And there's a sort of irony here. Uh, make America great again, uh, put America first. And in his closing speech the day before he quit office, he listed all his achievements and principle among them is the world now has learned to respect the United States. And my impression that it's maybe the opposite, that actually the ability of the United States during Trump to shape events, to influence actors, uh, in most instances, not in all, uh, diminished. If you want some achievement, I do think it's an achievement that he made uh, the non-American NATO partners to take their role more seriously. One should give that to him. So it's interesting that each of you, in response to my question, which areas were most affected, decided actually to go to the foundations of, of the international system and to go to the foundations of international law. So let's, let's you know, continue our conversation with, with some examination of, of that, right? So let's talk about the approach to multi, multilateralism and to, to international institutions. So Maybe I can ask you, Shimon, you know, we saw in the very early um, part of the Trump administration, we saw the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Change Agreement, which Joe Biden's now trying to get the US back into. We saw the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. We then saw last year the withdrawal from the from the World Health Organization. And I, and I imagine that these are the things that you are, you all are pointing to about the withdrawal from multilateralism. But actually, the U.S. was not presumably the only one that was shifting away from multilateralism in this period. So do you think that Trump was reflecting something that already existed? Or do you think he was more the cause of this um, disengagement from multilateralism? As Joseph mentioned, uh, the notion that an America first platform 
uh, was somehow successfully conveyed as an America alone platform, the deep lack of understanding in the American public that the United States has succeeded in achieving its ends uh, and to a large extent shaping the world order in its image for, for good and for ill uh, was because of its ability to influence other countries in these various multilateral settings. So the withdrawal from agreements, I think, uh, for Trump, the individual, um, was as much just a slap in the face to the outgoing Obama administration as it was part of some uh, broader world view. I think he was very clear, uh, again, both in terms of domestic regulations and foreign policy, that he wanted to uh, take a wrecking ball to everything the Obama administration had created. And quite frankly, uh, with all of the executive orders we saw yesterday on the first half day of the Biden administration, uh, as you well know, that included uh, a, a reversal, 180 degree reversal of those things that can easily be reversed. Uh, so for example, uh, rejoining the Paris Agreement, that uh, notification has already been sent to the Secretary General. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci is headed now uh, virtually, I presume, <laughs> to meetings at the WHO and the State Department right away uh, put in regulations so that funding will now continue to the WHO. So the, the um, lack of continuity between administrations, I think, is something that uh, this multilateralist system had not taken sufficiently into account. There was sort of a presumption of continuity, uh, changes around the edges maybe, but, but continuity at the core. And it's that lack of, of um, ability to rely on continuity that I think is is troubling and whether we're, we see that in other countries, I mean, the UK obviously is the closest example I can think of at the moment where we also see a withdrawal from multilateralism fueled by domestic politics. Um, but I, I think we're at a bit of a tipping point. I'm not sure, uh, we're, we're looking to you, the continental Europeans, to see whether you manage to preserve multilateralism as a, as a way of doing business uh, or whether you'll go the way of, of the US and the UK. So I, I think it'd be nice to come back to that actually as to whether the, the US position over the last few years is exceptional. But Joseph, what's your reaction to what Shimen uh, has just been saying? So, of course, uh, on the substance of the issues, I'm, uh, like many people, are happy that some of the uh, policies of Trump were reversed. But it's a good example to show the long-term damage done to the credibility of the United States. Uh, withdrawal from an international organization would be an exceptional measure. And the United States, on the whole, was a trustworthy partner. And now the impression is given that you sign an agreement, you join an organization, you have an accord, and with each presidency, we just have to wait and see what the president will do on the first day. We have a sort of pattern of a new president coming in and undoing uh, agreements agreed by their predecessors. That's not good for the world, and that's not good for the United States, because the United States is not any actor. It's one of the principal actors in the international legal arena. So this instability... It's not as if, oh, Biden can come in and just reverse all the damage by rejoining, etc. It's the very credibility of the United States and the stability of things that are meant to be long term that is now being called into question and cannot be just reversed by signing an executive agreement on the first day. So the damage he has done is, Trump has done is long term. So in other words, it's pacta sunt servanda 
for as long as this president is in office. You know, agreements will be kept as long as this president is there. And once the next one comes in, who knows? Um, exactly. It's the, it's the who knows. It's the question mark there. Yeah. Niha, I, I was just wondering whether if we broaden this out beyond the US, right? So it's not as if, you know, we're in an era like the 1990s where you might say that there was sort of rampant multilateralism. Are there factors that go beyond actually the US in some of these things that we're talking about? Shemin's already mentioned Brexit. There have already been cases of other states wanting to pull out of other international treaties, whether it's the International Criminal Court Statute or or other treaties. What else, what else if anything, is, is going on here? I think that the general fatigue um, often of international institutions at this point, not simply in the United States, but but worldwide. And also it would be it would be nearsighted to focus simply on the multilateral system. Because even with, with President Biden, the emphasis is on allies and finding allies, not necessarily on multilateralism. And those allies can be bilateral, those allies can be regional. And in fact, President Biden has emphasized, and Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, the incoming Secretary of State, has emphasized, for instance, the Americas policy, the central, the focus on Central America, the Northern Triangle for President Biden, which was an important policy objective even during his years as vice president. Um, there's been an emphasis on finding allies to combat the power of China, for instance. There's been an emphasis on finding allies um, in the North Korea policy, but regional allies, again, like South Korea and Japan. So the emphasis on moving away from multilateralism is not is not confined to the Trump administration. It's um, it's it's a general fatigue, I think, in the U.S. Um, that both predates the Trump administration and is likely to continue, and it's certainly likely to continue beyond the United States. So in Africa, as you mentioned, Apo, um, we've seen a movement against the International Criminal Court, which is not simply because um, because of the International Criminal Court being being perceived as an institution that's anti-Africa, but also because of endemic problems within the institutional and architectural architectural structure of the International Criminal Court internally. Um, there's been a backlash against international human rights institutions and regional international regional human rights institutions in Latin America, for instance. So this is not simply a policy that's confined to this moment in time or this country at this particular juncture. So Trade might have been, when you asked the first question, in which areas it caused most damage, I think a lot of our listeners might have thought that immediately one would jump up and say trade. And he did do damage in two areas, I'm generalizing. He practically asphyxiated the appellate body uh, of the WTO. And then his use of trade measures with uh, total contempt for the rules and an abusive ru- uh, use of the rules, pleading national security, uh, w- threatening to block importations of automobiles or the steel tariffs they imposed. That's a clear abuse of the The reason I didn't jump up and say that, because these things are reversible. I imagine the Biden administration very quickly will move ahead to resurrect the appellate body of the WTO. And so that damage will pass. And one hopes that uh, the Biden administration would be much more respectful of the rules of the game when it comes to trade disputes, etc. But 
what the Trump uh, uh, actions did was was also to expose some of the weaknesses of the WTO and international trading system. It was a little bit like a stress test we do for banks. We put them in an extreme situation to see how they will, uh, what is their capacity to react. And I will mention three things because these things need attending to regardless of Trump, even if Trumpism is over, which we don't know if it is. Uh, so take uh, issue number one, the, those infamous or famous steel tariffs pleading national security. The European Union immediately uh, reacted and said, we will retaliate. But the, you cannot retaliate legally. If they were to retaliate, they themselves would be breaking the rules of the WTO. You can only retaliate if uh, the measures of the United States were safeguard measures, but these were national security measures. So you have to go through the process before you retaliate. Uh, you have to file a complaint, a few months waiting, then it goes before a panel, another few months, then it will go to the appellate body, another few months, then the United States will say, we were thinking about it. They have a year to cease and desist. Then they will cease and desist. And the union will say that's not enough. So then it will go to arbitration. These disputes can last for two or three years. And during that time, your hands are tied. You cannot do anything. That's issue number one that needs thinking. Issue number two, uh, all of us here, you Dapo, will know one of the fundamental principles of international law generally is when a violation of international law has taken place, uh, at the end of the day, there have to be reparation. The WTO eviscerated that fundamental provision of international law. You violate the law, you violate the WTO, you go through the process. The only duty you have is to cease and desist from violating. There is no right to any reparation. It creates a huge moral hazard. Let's do it. We'll enjoy the uh, profits of our violation of the WTO rules for two or three years. And then we will say, okay, we will stop now. It's Usually people say the WTO was a huge advance on international law. There's compulsory jurisdiction. There are sanctions. That thing is overlooked and it's extremely damaging. And the third thing, and yeah, I have some sympathy with the American administrations, I will say. Uh, you have conflicts with states on a whole variety of issues. What instrument do you have to bring pressure? Lawful instruments. You take countermeasures, and we hope the countermeasures will not be forceful, illegal, but usually they will be of an economic nature. Uh, you can impose tariffs, you can withdraw concessions, etc. So let's say, hypothetically, the Chinese are stealing intellectual property. That's not, and they're doing it in a way that does not violate the WTO rules. What are you going to do against them? Your toolkit is significantly restricted because any measure you want to take which affects trade can only be used as a countermeasure to somebody else who has violated the WTO. So suddenly you find yourself with your hands tied, hemmed, your toolkit is substantially reduced. So these are three areas where the Trump abusive use of the system exposed in a very, very visible way. And that's why I said it was like a stress test. Uh, some of the systemic weaknesses of the international trading system. Huh, that's very 
very interesting and um i was thinking as you were as you were speaking about those those systemic issues that you know trump took action not only in relation to the wto in the trade area i mean but he also took action in relation to some of the regional agreements too so one of his kind of rallying cries was sort of renegotiating nafta renegotiating some some of the free trade agreements and and some of those things did have support i think even you know uh, within the us and elsewhere do you think that some of those uh calls that he was making for renegotiating some of those agreements were also sort of examples of places where there was a, a real need for rules to change no no look there's no trade agreement which is perfect so there's always nothing that is good cannot be made better so there's a process there are committees you can repair etc that was all domestic policy bluster you need a microscope and a magnifying glass to find any meaningful differences between the nafta and the new united states uh, mexico canada agreement so it was really a, a show for his base look i'm mr tuffman etc but in substance there's not much of a difference and it was damaging because of the threat we're going to pull out etc you know pushing the nu- nuclear the trade nuclear button instead of saying let's sit down and uh, renegotiate it wasn't uh, it was more political bravado for domestic audience than really re- nothing in the nafta uh demanded that kind of drastic uh, blustering rhetoric uh and action in some areas the new agreement uh, is an improvement but what agreement cannot be improved one of the other multilateral institutions that the us has if you like we might say gone after over the last 4 years has been the international criminal court um Shimen, let me first of all ask you just to describe for us what exactly has happened in terms of the relations between the US and and the ICC over the last few years and then get some thoughts from you from Niha about um the effects of this on the ICC. Sure, Dapo. Well, as as you all well know and as as Ijal listeners no doubt uh, have followed the icc has been an issue on which we had already in the past seen differences between administrations so there have been areas of continuity and areas of discontinuity the area of continuity is that ever since the negotiation of the rome statute the united states has made very clear in its public statements and its communications that it does not believe that the regime created by the rome statute creates a jurisdiction over non-states parties nationals uh, and so uh, absent sort of explicit ad hoc consent and so that has been uh, a core ongoing disagreement that is not particular to any administration what was uh, remarkably different of course and I, i do attribute this to a certain extent to john bolton's resurgent role at least for a little while there in the trump administration uh, was really this focus on the icc and of course what precipitated that uh, was the uh, investigation in afghanistan and so the 
uh, understanding that the Office of the Prosecutor was actively looking into uh, alleged violations of the Rome Statute on the territory, of course, of Afghanistan, a state party, but also uh, on the territories of other Eastern European states parties where there were uh, alleged black sites and so on and so forth in which uh, the United States allegedly engaged in war crimes. And so I think when that uh, investigation gained momentum, uh, it really created, uh, and again, this also at the tail end of the Obama administration, a dilemma for the United States, which on the one hand uh, is, has always been you know, very, uh, a very jealous guardian of its sovereignty. But I think where we've seen the United States policy, in my view, really just going off the rails, uh, and I know Neha will have more to say about this, uh, is the, the sanctions then imposed on individual ICC officials, which is really unprecedented. Um, I, you know, whoever's bright idea that was, uh, is really opening the door to uh, of course, you know, an international organization doesn't have power to retaliate, but the, the normalization of these individual sanctions as a tool of foreign policy, the United States, again, had very much used it vis-a-vis authoritarian regimes. Uh, this is one of the sort of examples, perhaps, of countermeasures outside of the economic context that the United States has used, whether it's freezing assets, denying visas, and so forth. Um, but now, as you saw, right at 12.04 p.m. Uh, Eastern time, I believe it was, Pacific, China coming up with a raft of individualized sanctions uh, against Mike Pompeo and a whole host of U.S. officials. And uh, interestingly, right, the Biden administration right away issued a statement saying these are unproductive. Given what Shimon has just been saying about the sort of discontin the continuities and the discontinuities of the relationship between the U.S. and the ICC, um, Neha, where do you think that relationship sort of goes from here? I think what we can hope to see is that the U.S. doing more um, just quiet diplomacy, both behind the scenes diplomacy as well as as well as overt statements of support, perhaps some of the roles uh, that the ICC is going to play beyond the United States and not simply in terms of its uh, relationship and the investigations into Afghanistan and the Afghanistan situation. So I think what we can expect is showing up, um, as as Anthony Blinken said in his um, confirmation hearing, the US is going to be much more present at the table. It has seen in the past, specifically in relationship to the ICC, what happens when it does show up. Uh, Harold Cole was very present during the Kampala negotiations uh, negotiations on, on aggression, for instance, which made a real difference to the negotiations. The U.S. position was, the U.S. presence was welcomed. Um, I think the U.S. walked away with some distinct advantages from being present in those negotiations. negotiations. And there's a consciousness on the part of the U.S. that showing up matters and that showing up can have a positive impact on its relationship with the ICC. I think what we will also see is a concerted effort by the U.S. to talk in the language of the law and not in the language of sanctions or wars, sanction wars um, or, or race to the bottom on sanction wars at this point. So we will see a more concerted effort to, to claim that there are domestic accountability efforts that would preclude the jurisdiction of the ICC under a complementarity mechanism. So there would be more of a willingness to engage with the ICC um, diplomatically and put diplomacy first rather than last in terms of the relationship, um, rather than moving headfirst with sanctions or more aggressive measures. 
One of the things that this conversation, maybe the key thing actually that this conversation has revealed is that over the last four years, we've seen this big uh, decline in the use of multilateral institutions. And arguably, that's not just, you know, it's not just the US, and arguably, it's not just an elite thing. It's something that also goes, um, you know, to the grassroots. And the question is, how do we restore that? Shimen. Well, I was very struck by Joseph's stress test metaphor uh, for the world trade system. And so I'll say we've uh, seen these last four years a stress test of democratic institutions within the United States uh, and in other uh, international uh, structures that we have relied on or come to rely on for both stability and predictability, uh, but also guarantees of you know, fundamental human dignity uh, and, and human rights protections. And I think the willingness of countries to to go along to to buy into this system right comes both from a sense of self-interest and also a sense of self-image right wanting to project an image as uh whether you want to call it a law-abiding member of the international community a country that lives by democratic values and so forth in order to do that and in order to continue electing leaders who have that sense that it is in uh, both the interest and consistent with the values of the country to participate in good faith in these kind of arrangements. We need an electorate that is educated to certainly the burdens of international engagement, but most importantly to its benefits. And my deepest concern at this juncture is that the disinformation pandemic uh, in the United States and worldwide is going to make it increasingly difficult for that message to get across, uh, particularly in the United States with our uh, wonderful First Amendment, uh, which is, is delightful and important and critical in so many areas, but also means that uh, you would be shocked to see the sorts of information that people are exposed to, even from major networks in this country, uh, unless we really figure out how to bring people on board more broadly with this project. Uh, elite consensus, so to speak, is not going to sustain itself. And that, of course, is not just a challenge for the US. That's a challenge for so many domestic uh, constituencies all around the world. So it just leaves me to say thank you very much uh, to you, Joseph Weiler, to Neha Jain, and to Shimen Keitner, and also to you, our listeners. To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and to listen to previous episodes of the podcast, visit ejotalk.org.